Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, Volume 1, Chapter 6. Previously on Pride and Prejudice, we have met the Bennet family, which is Mr. and Mrs. Bennet and their five daughters, Jane, Lizzie, Mary, Kitty, and Lydia. And we've gotten to know them just a little bit. We saw them meet the new men in town, Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley. And then we've met the um, Lucas family, which is the main member we talked to is Charlotte Lucas, who is Elizabeth's bestie. Um, and they are the family that lives essentially next door. They are the, I, it seems to be closest family of means or, you know, that they spend time with nearby. And in this next chapter, chapter six, we get to visit them at their home in the country and get to see a bit of a little, um, I guess, dinner party there. And that's where we are with chapter six. So here we are in chapter six. I am going to warn you right now. I'm basically going to be reading this entire chapter to you because there's a lot of good stuff in it. And I really enjoy this chapter. And I've got a lot of good stuff from Charlotte Lucas, who is one of my favorite characters. I love her so much. Um, but I will wait to tell you a lot of my love for her and my thoughts about her in a later chapter with her engagement. Um, I have a lot to say about that when we get there. But... I love Charlotte Lucas, and there's some good stuff from her in here. So chapter six starts off with the first little bit is the ladies of Longbourn soon waited on those of Netherfield. The visit was returned in due form. Miss Bennet's pleasing manners grew on the goodwill of Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley, and though the mother was found to be intolerable and the younger sisters not worth speaking to, a wish of being better acquainted with them was expressed toward the two eldest. By Jane, this attention was received with the greatest pleasure— but Elizabeth still saw superciliousness in their treatment of everybody, hardly accepting even her sister, and could not like them. So this first chunk, I think, is an interesting thing in that I feel like this is a part that I want to try and focus on as we get through, as we keep going through the novel of who is talking. So this chunk, I think, is from the narrator, you know, like a third-person omniscient Jane Austen sitting in her rocking chair narrator telling us because we're getting the thoughts of Mrs. Um, Hurst and Miss Bingley. Whereas I think most of the novel is from Elizabeth's perspective and her inner monologue, her thoughts. This particular bit, I think, starts with kind of third-person omniscient and then moves into Elizabeth's thoughts, um, which is something that happens a lot where you kind of go back and forth between being in Elizabeth's head and being in an omniscient narrator's head. And I think it's important to kind of pick out where you are, like which version of the narrator we're listening to, because that becomes important. Um, there's some really good YouTube videos on this kind of concept of the way, what is it, free and direct discourse that um, Jane Austen does by, um, by uh, Dr. Octavia Cox. If you look up Octavia Cox on YouTube, you can find her videos. She has a lot of good stuff on Jane Austen in general, and um, her thoughts about this I think she calls it the free and direct discourse is where kind of I'm going with this of like when you're a third person omniscient narrator and when you are in Lizzie's head 
in this novel I think is important. Um, and so I think this little section I just read, the first part where he's learning about what's in Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley's thoughts, that's the third person omniscient. There's no real reason that Elizabeth would necessarily know that or be able to say those words. Um, and then you find, and then it's still when it says that this attention was received with pleasure by Jane, that could still be the third person omniscient. It could be Elizabeth's perception, but I would go with that. And then Elizabeth still saw superciliousness in their treatment of everybody, hardly even accepting, hardly accepting even her sister and could not like them. That definitely could still be third person, but we could also be getting into Elizabeth's head there. And in my opinion, as we go into the next part, we have now moved into Elizabeth's head with that. So in my opinion, we start off this this section of it with a third person omniscient talking about Mrs. Hurst, Miss Bingley, possibly even into the Jane. And then as soon as we get over to what Elizabeth thinks, we're switching over and now we are in Elizabeth's head. And the reason that that is important, um, narrative like to the story I'll leave, um, I'll let Dr. Octavia Cox talk about like the linguistics and, um, I don't know, how do I put this? The literary importance of that, because she's much more of an expert. Again, I'm not an expert on anything. I just like talking about Jane Austen, but, um, so I'm not going to worry about like literally, literary, I can't say that word, little literarily, is that even a word? You know what I mean? Um, part of why that's important, but narratively why that's important to the story itself is that I think in this chapter, we're going to start seeing some places where we have an unreliable narrator going on in this book. And we're going to come on to that, a place of that real, real quick right here. Um, so it says hardly accepting even her sister and she could not, and could not like them. So Elizabeth doesn't like them. So we're still talking, the them and there, we're still talking about the Bingley sisters, Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley. So it goes on to say, though their kindness to Jane, such as it was, had a value in arising in all probability from the influence of their brother's admiration. So that is the part I'm talking about where I feel like that is, we're now in Lizzie's head and we've got Lizzie. This is what Lizzie thinks. Lizzie thinks that the sisters are only being nice to Jane or probably being nice to Jane because they know that their brother likes her so much. And so they're trying to either ingratiate themselves with her or support the match or whatever they're doing, but they're being nice to her because for, for the sake of their brother is what she thinks. And we will learn later on in this novel and even like really knowing them much at all. That doesn't make any sense to me even like that's not true. And we will find out factually that is not true. So this idea that, their kindness to Jane, such as it was, had a value in arising in all probability from the influence of their brother's admiration. That is factually untrue. We will learn that later on for sure by what they do later on to try and separate the two of them. But we um, we don't know for sure, I guess, yet. But we already have inklings, I think, that the um, Bingley sisters would not be in favor of a match between Jane Bennett and their brother. So there's no reason for them to try and encourage that by being nice to Jane, right? Um, but Elizabeth thinks that that's what's going on. And I I believe that that is part something that's coming from Jane's head. And that you're just supposed to, like, on a first reading or a, like, kind of, I don't know, overall reading, just going through quickly for the story, I think you a lot of times would just kind of miss that. But reading it, I think it's a, it's a hint that this is not true. That statement doesn't make sense. 
even from what we know in, if this was the first time reading it, if you were really, really paying attention, what we know of the Bennett, or not the Bennett, the Bingley sisters at this moment, I think would make you question that statement because it doesn't make sense with their character. Why would they be wanting to encourage their brother in liking this country nobody that they've made very clear they don't, you know, they don't like the family, they don't like the area, they don't think they're good enough for them. This is all very evident already in the novel. So why would they want to be nice to Jane as like a way of encouraging their brother liking her? That makes no sense. And I think it is a, for me at least, I don't know, maybe I've missed something in the first few chapters, but it's the, I think this is like one of the first places, if not the first place, where we really see that kind of moment where Elizabeth is an unreliable narrator and saying something that is not true. Um, and I think it will be important, you know, this, this idea of what the Bingley sisters want and what they're, why they're being nice to Jane and everything will become important eventually. But I think that this sentence proves to us that we're in Elizabeth's head and Elizabeth is not always correct. This is one of her mistakes. All right. And then it moves on to talk about Jane and Mr. Bingley. And I still think we're in Elizabeth's head here. It was generally evident whenever they met that he did admire her, Jane. And to her, it was equally evident that Jane, Jane was yielding to the preference which she had begun to entertain for him from the first and was in a way to be very much in love. So Elizabeth, again, we're in Elizabeth's head here, I'm pretty sure, feels like it's very clear that Bingley likes Jane and it's, I think it's interesting that, at least in my copy, there is an, the her there is italicized. And to her, it was equally evident that Jane was yielding to the preference. So, and to Lizzie is what she means there. So, and to Lizzie, it was equally evident that Jane was yielding to the preference, which she had begun to entertain for him. So it's very clear to Lizzie that Bingley and Jane are falling for each other. And that Jane is in a way to be very much in love. And then we go on to say, but she considered with pleasure that it was not likely to be discovered by the world in general, since Jane united with great strength of feeling a composure of temper and a uniform cheerfulness of manner, which would guard her from the suspicions of the impertinent. All right, this is another place where this is going to be important later. And again, if you're just kind of reading through for the story and not paying very specific attention to every little moment, I think it would be very easy to pass this little sentence by. But basically what Jane, Elizabeth is saying here is that she can tell Jane's in love with Bingley. But she's her sister and has known her for forever and knows everything about her. But she is considered with pleasure that probably nobody else is going to realize that Jane's in love. That she has a composure and temp of temper and uniform cheerfulness of manner, which would guard her from the suspicions of the impertinent. So Jane while actually feeling deeply, is able to hide that. And Liz Lizzie thinks that's a really good thing. Lizzie thinks that it is, it will help protect her from rumors and gossip and things that she's able to hide her love so well. And that it is a good thing. And then we get the opposite perspective. So... And then we get some real truth bombs dropped by my favorite, Charlotte Lucas, 
So she mentions this to her friend, Miss Lucas. So Lizzie mentions her, her thoughts to Miss Lucas, and this is her reply. It may perhaps be pleasant, replied Charlotte, to be able to impose on the public in such a case, but it is sometimes a disadvantage to be so very guarded. If a woman conceals her affection from the man with, from, ugh, ugh. if a woman conceals her affection with the same skill from the object of it, she may lose the opportunity of fixing him, and it will then be but poor consolation to believe the world equally in the dark. So here I think again, is something that is supposed to hint to us about problems that are going to be, this is foreshadowing, things are going, problems that are going to come up in the future, right? Because this is the same thing that Darcy will eventually tell Elizabeth way, way down the road that he didn't think Jane was in love with Bingley. And here we have Elizabeth saying that same thing, that she doesn't think anybody's going to be able to figure out that Jane's in love with Bingley. And that's, isn't that wonderful? And Charlotte's saying, well, yeah, that might be nice. Like, okay, so maybe it's nice that people can't tell that she's in love, but if she conceals her affection with the same skill from the object of it, she may lose the opportunity of fixing him. So, yeah, that's lovely and all that nobody can tell she's in love, but if nobody can tell she's in love, including Bingley, the object of her affections, if he can't tell that she's in love, then she might lose him because he won't realize that she's in love with him. And she goes on to make some really uh, a point that I really, really like. So I'm going to keep reading. Um, and, th and it will then be but poor consolation to believe the world equally in the dark. There is so much of gratitude or vanity in almost every attachment that it is not safe to leave to any to itself. We can all begin freely. A slight preference is natural enough. But there are very few of us who have heart enough to really be in love without encouragement. And... I just think that that is such a great line. And again, proof of what a queen Charlotte is. Charlotte's the best. Um, that line of, again, there are very few of us who have heart enough to really be in love without encouragement. That is just so true. <laughs> and again, we will see this with Bingley in the future, that he isn't sure that Jane loves him. When Darcy tells him confidently that he doesn't think Jane does, he... Bingley is a, lets her go. Bingley walks away. And it's because he doesn't believe that Jane loves him. And it is one of those things where I think it is human nature to want some, like, I don't know, again, affirmation that this thing is mutual to really, before you really put all your heart into it, before, again, if you have heart enough to really be in love without encouragement. That is just such a true human thing that it's really hard to give your all to somebody if you don't feel that reciprocation and I think Charlotte is just so correct there and she's going to be proven even more correct in the future but that's just such a great line from Charlotte Lucas and um, my book has little like annotations throughout and I thought it was really interesting there's one here that reminded me that um, talks about how this sentiment of the idea of needing encouragement within love how that kind of um, mirrors something that's written in Northanger Abbey which was written prior to this novel and tried to be published before this one was published but it was actually published you know way later after Jane Austen dies um, but that I've already talked about in this um, podcast series if you want to go listen to my thoughts on Northanger Abbey and I love it but 
this, the quote from Northanger Abbey is, I must confess that his affection originated in nothing better than gratitude, or in other words, that a persuasion of her partiality for him had been the only cause of giving her a serious thought. It is a new circumstance in romance, I acknowledge, and dreadfully derogatory to, of a heroine's digni dignity, but if it be an, an, as new in common life, the credit of a wild imagination will at least be all my own. Um, so it's a very similar thought there that Mr. Tilney, so that quote's from um, Northanger Abbey is talking about why Mr. Tilney, Mr. Henry Tilney, fell in love with Catherine Moreland. And saying that really the the reason that he gave her a serious look was that he was pretty sure she had a crush on him first. Right? And it's that same kind of thought here of like, you need to let him know that you're interested or he might look someplace else he won't pay you a serious attention and that is what charlotte is worried about here and saying is that you know he won't want to completely fall in love with her he won't be all in in this relationship with her until he feels like his feelings are reciprocated and you know you need to make sure that that happens that he feels that that he feels secure in the knowledge that jane loves him back and I think that that's really good advice that then Lizzie just kind of throws away. Um, but Charlotte continues, in nine cases out of ten, a woman had better show more affection than she feels. Bingley likes your sister undoubtedly, but he may never do more than like her if she does not help him on. And so that basically is exactly what I just said, that he needs encouragement from Jane um, and acknowledgement that she likes him back very specifically, you know, that she likes him, likes him, not just as a friend. And uh, I think that's really solid advice from Charlotte that is proven to be correct as we go along in this novel. But Elizabeth disagrees. She says, but she does help him on as much as her nature will allow. If I can perceive her regard for him, he must be a simpleton indeed not to discover it too. Which is another place where we're seeing some faults in Elizabeth. I think the idea that, well, I can tell my sister loves him. Why can't he tell it? Well, he doesn't know her like you do, right? He doesn't know everything about um, Jane and he can't read every little aspect of her. Um, this is making me think of when they do this part in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is a fabulous YouTube series. Highly recommend. Go and watch. It's a modern adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. But they do... Uh, like a recreation basically of the scene of Charlotte explaining to Lizzie that Jane needs to, you know, show her affections more. Um, and I am not going to be able to do it justice, but that episode chef's kiss is fabulous. And the way that they show that is, you know, the many, the many faces of Jane Bennett um, and how she's so, bubbly and warm and kind to everyone that it's hard to tell who she really likes and who she hates. Um, and, you know, that is a problem if you want somebody to realize that you love them. And so this idea that Elizabeth has that he has to be able to tell because I can tell is just plain silly, in my opinion. And... Charlotte agrees. She goes back with, remember, Eliza, that he does not know Jane's disposition as you do. And Elizabeth replies, but if a woman is partial to a man and does not endeavor to conceal it, he must find it out. Perhaps he must. If he sees her enough of her, 
but though bingley and jane meet tolerably often it is never for many hours together and as they always see each other in large mixed parties it is impossible that every moment should be employed in conversing together jane should therefore make the most of every half hour in which she can command his attention when she is secure of him there will be leisure for falling in love as much as she chooses now here is where in my view charlotte goes a little far um so i think she's correct in the beginning of this where she's saying that bingley and jane meet tolerably often but they you know are never alone together because that's completely inappropriate in this time period um so jane should make the most of every half hour in which she can command his attention so that's that would be when she's dancing right the half hour thing that's how long a dance is so she gets him to be she gets to be semi alone with him theoretically on the dance floor for that half hour and she really should make the most of those and then the part that i think she's going a little far in and that elizabeth does too is when she is secure of him there will be leisure for falling in love as much as she chooses <sighs> which is which means when she's secure of him right when they're engaged um once she's engaged to him then she can really get to know him which honestly is kind of how marriage worked at the time it seems like because you're never allowed to be alone with the man even when you're engaged you're really not supposed to be so you really don't get to know the person until you're already married to them um which seems crazy and stupid to me from a modern perspective but um but this idea i do think that i think that there is merit in the idea as far as in that society in that time you're never really going to get to know somebody 100 percent before you marry them unless you marry your cousin or somebody like very close to the family that you've grown up with um which actually happens in a couple of jane austen's novels there's one where she marries a cousin and one where she marries a family friend she grew up with um but other than those situations, the way that they keep the, you know, men and women separated and the way society runs, I do think it's true that you're really not going to know the person inside and out when you get married to them. There's a lot of trust being put in there to do that. And this idea that once she's engaged to him, once she's secure of him like that, there will be leisure for falling in love as much as she chooses is a very unromantic way to look at things which I think really does fit in with Charlotte. I don't see Charlotte as romantic, which we, again, we'll get into more when she, she gets engaged because I think it says a lot to her character there. But I think this idea here, this advice saying that, you know, once she's secure of, secure of him, there will be leisure for falling in love as much as she chooses is, again, a huge foreshadowing of what she will do and how her, what her personality and thoughts on marriage are that Elizabeth completely ignores or doesn't understand or notice thinks that it thinks she's laughed thinks that she's joking i don't think charlotte's joking i think this is real advice from charlotte this is how charlotte actually feels about things i'm not sure i you know i obviously don't agree and especially in a modern context don't get married to somebody you don't know that's stupid but um in the time period i think that this is really what charlotte thinks and what charlotte thinks you should do or at least what she's planning to do herself as we'll find out eventually um and i think the merit of it is that i do think that jane needs to the advice that charlotte's giving here of that jane needs to make sure that bingley is aware that she really likes him is fair enough and is true 
The idea that you should wait to fall in love until you're already married to the guy, don't really agree with and think is probably a bad plan. If you actually want to be in love with the guy you married, which doesn't seem as important to Charlotte, so maybe that's why she doesn't care as much. Um, so we're going on. It says, your plan is a good one, replied Elizabeth, where nothing is in question but the desire of being well married. And if I were determined to get a rich husband or any husband, I dare say I should adopt it. But these are not Jane's feelings. She is not acting by design. As yet, she cannot even be certain of the degree of her own regard, nor of its reasonableness. She has known him only a fortnight. She danced four dances with him in Meryton. She saw him one morning at his own house, and has since dined in company with him four times. This is not quite enough to make her understand his character. So, again, looking into this, Elizabeth saying that this you have a good plan if your only thought is or desire is being well married or getting a rich husband which we will find out eventually that that really is kind of the desire of Charlotte Lucas that you know she is not expecting a love match the way Elizabeth and Jane are she's just hoping for a comfortable home as she puts it again i keep jumping the gun we will get to that with Charlotte eventually but i think this is a lot of foreshadowing of how Charlotte actually thinks about these sorts of things um, which is very differently than Lizzie and Jane think about these things. And so Elizabeth is saying that Jane isn't even sure yet, which I'm not sure if that's true. I think Jane probably is pretty sure, even if she's pretending she's not even to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, I think, is the one who's not sure here. <laughs> is not 100% sure that this is the correct thing for Jane. Um, but I think Jane is pretty darn sure. And... So these things here that she's not that as yet she cannot even be certain of the degree of her own regard nor if it's reasonableness. She hasn't known him that long. I feel very sure that again this is I mean this is what Lizzie's saying so it's not even a narrating situation but it's again sort of a unreliable narrator thing because I don't I don't believe her that that's what Jane thinks. I think if we were able to get a Jane's head she is not having the same doubts that Elizabeth is having. <laughs> Elizabeth needs more time. I don't know that Jane does. In any case, um, Charlotte disagrees. She says, not as you represent it. Had she merely dined with him, she might only have discovered whether he had a good appetite. But you must remember that four evenings have also been spent together. And four evenings may do a great deal. Yes, these four evenings in that have enabled them to ascertain that they both like Vingat Un better than Commerce, but with respect to any other leading characteristic, I do not imagine that much has been unfolded. So Charlotte comes back with, okay, yes, they had dinner together four times, but they also, you know, the way these dinner parties work, spend a bunch of time hanging out after dinner, like hours after dinner every time. And so that you can learn a great deal about each other. And Lizzie comes back with, well, yeah, they played cards, so they know which card games they like. But, um, you know, they haven't been able to have deep conversations about their, like, life goals and you know dreams and aspirations and all of that so they haven't gotten that deep information yet so they kind of just have a fundamental disagreement there about how well they need to know the person before they get married so we found out that charlotte doesn't think you really need to know all that much and lizzie does think you should know everything about them and i do think that this interestingly kind of goes with sense and sensibility like charlotte's kind of the sense elizabeth's kind of the sensibility here um if you know the eleanor marianne dynamic that's kind of how i see that here 
that Charlotte's the Eleanor and Elizabeth's the Marianne of that equation. Um, because Charlotte's being super practical. She is not being romantic. She is not putting much emphasis on whether you actually really enjoy the company of the other person. She's very much looking at it as a sort of practical partnership, business arrangement sort of situation. And I think that's just how Charlotte sees these things. And it's very much not how Lizzie sees things. But I don't think that Charlotte is necessarily wrong in her estimation. It's just a very different way to look at the world. Anyway. Well, said Charlotte, I wish Jane success with all my heart, and if she were married to him tomorrow, I should think she had as good a chance of happiness as if she were to be studying his character for a twelve-month. <sighs> Again, I don't really agree with Charlotte here. <laughs> um, well, I do and I don't, because knowing Bingley and knowing Jane, uh, from having read the book all the way through multiple times and seen all the, ver all the adaptations and blah, 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 I mean, I do agree with her that we know these two are just so well matched that, yeah, they probably would be a perfect couple even if they got married next week. And or whether they waited a year from now, they're just going to be that good of a couple. Um, but in reality and in real life and getting to know these people and not, you know, already knowing everything about them, it does seem like not the best idea to just jump into marriage with anybody. But then we end on this quote, which I really, really love. Charlotte ends this little thing with, Happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. If the dispositions of the parties are ever so well known to each other, or ever so similar beforehand, it does not advance their felicity in the least. They always continue to grow sufficiently unlike afterwards to have their share of vexations, and it is better to know as little as possible of the defects of the person with whom you are to pass your life. Now that is just cynical in the max. I think, well, A, I think it's hilarious. Um, I don't agree at all. Um, but I do think it's interesting because it sounds very similar to, honestly, what I hear on some, like, Christian YouTube youtubers pages talking about marriage where their basic advice is as long as you're both good godly people it doesn't matter whether you're like a good individual match for each other because you're going to be good godly people together and it's all going to be fine and that's very much what it feels like here is like the way i read it anyway is basically like as long as you're decent enough people it'll be fine it doesn't matter how like perfectly you think that you're you know, you get along beforehand. Once you live together, it's going to be a completely different dynamic. It's going to be a completely different thing all over the place. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter. It'll be fine. Um, and you'll continue to grow sufficiently, unlike afterwards, that you'll have your share of vexation. So no matter how great everything is, you're eventually going to have problems. You're eventually going to fight. Um, so you might as well get to know them after you're married anyway, and that way you can, like, slow down the process, basically. Um, it's a very cynical view. It's not a romantic view at all. Um, I do think we're going to find out that Charlotte believes this and is going to be, um, true to herself in her own marriage choices by living up to these words. But, um, I do think it's kind of sad. 
And I also think it shows, it points out maybe her own view of marriage based on who the people she's seen married around her, both the Bennets and her own parents. I think, I wonder what the Luke, the uh, senior Lucas's marriage is like for their daughter to have such a cynical view of what marriage could be. Makes me wonder about the Lucases in general. Um, and yeah, I, I think that line is great. I, it shows up in a number of the adaptations and I think it's fabulous. But, and I think it's both funny and poignant and sad. <laughs> uh, but shows us a lot about Charlotte. And Lizzie comes back with, you make me laugh, Charlotte, but it's not sound. You know it is not sound. And that you would never act in this way yourself. Which is another place. Again, Lizzie's wrong. <laughs> Lizzie doesn't know Charlotte as well as she thinks she does. Because Charlotte's not going to correct her. But um, in a few chapters, we're going to find out that no, Charlotte does completely believe what she just said. She agrees with it. She is planning to live her life by it. And she will. Basically, marry somebody she ha knows nothing about. Doesn't really know at all. And, uh... Is just going to make a go of it from there. So Lizzie's wrong when she says you would never act that way yourself. Yeah, she would. Again, we're seeing another place where just Lizzie just doesn't know people as well as she thinks she does. She's best friends with Charlotte, but she doesn't know her. Or at least not that side of her. It's never maybe come up before. Um, I wonder because, well, Charlotte is a good bit older than Lizzie. For, for one, Charlotte's 27. And Elizabeth is 20, I believe. So Charlotte's seven years older. By marriage age standards of the time, Charlotte is well on the shelf, I believe. Um, whereas Lizzie is just, you know, perfect ripe marriage, marrying age. So that's one big difference in them. And Lizzie is probably only just recently thinking about getting married, whereas Charlotte has been thinking about getting married for seven, eight, nine years now. So... They're in very different stages in that sense. And I don't know if that's the only reason that there's a difference there. Um, I do think that Charlotte is inherently less romantic about all of this. Um, so that's part of it as well. But I just that last sentence where sh she laughs at Charlotte and says, you wouldn't actually act that way yourself. is another place where we see Lizzie being wrong about character and about somebody. And so I see a lot of that in this chapter. We see a lot of little hints of Elizabeth. It does not know people quite as well as she thinks she does. All right. And here's another thing. Another place where Lizzie doesn't see what's right under her nose. So it goes on to say, Occupied in observing Mr. Bingley's attentions to her sister, Elizabeth was far from suspecting that she was herself becoming an object of some interest in the eyes of his friend. Mr. Darcy had at first scarcely allowed her to be pretty, but he had looked at her without admiration. He had looked at with her. Eh. He had looked at her without admiration at the ball, and when they next met, he looked at her only to criticize. But no sooner had he made it clear to himself and his friends that she had hardly a good feature in her face, than he began to find it was rendered uncommonly intelligent by the beautiful expression of her dark eyes. So this little passage here is another place where Elizabeth is. Far from suspecting something, she's not noticing that Darcy is now observing her a lot. Or, well, she will very soon realize that he's observing her, but she doesn't understand why. She doesn't get the kind of reasoning why he is looking at her the way he is. 
Um, so it's another place where Elizabeth is wrong. Um, and then this is a place where we're moving back into either into Darcy's head or into like a third person omniscient narrator. We're back out of Lizzie's consciousness here where it says that Darcy had first scarcely allowed her to be pretty, looked at her without admiration. And as soon as he says that, no, he doesn't like, he doesn't think she's pretty at all. Make sure he and his friends are all very clear that he doesn't think she's pretty. He realizes that, um, actually she has really pretty nice dark eyes. Um, and rendered uncommonly intelligent by the expression of her dark eyes. So there's a couple things here. First, it's pretty funny. Like, just the way it's put there. As soon as he makes it clear that he doesn't think she's pretty at all, he realizes, oh, crap, she is pretty. But I also really like that... What's... Why he thinks she's pretty, right? Is, like, she doesn't have a good feature in her face. But he finds that it's rendered uncommonly intelligent by the beautiful expression in her dark eyes. So he doesn't think she's pretty when he first meets her. But it's her wittiness and her personality that draws him to her. Not her inherent beauty. Which I really like. That he's there for like the internal, not the external of all of that. I think that that is a really good plus for Mr. Darcy here right from the get-go, the fact that he's into Elizabeth because she think, he thinks she looks intelligent, um, is that that's like the adjective we're using here for why he thinks that there's this beautiful expression in her dark eyes, that it's an intelligent expression, I think I find very endearing and very cool that he's drawn to her intelligence. Going on, to this discovery succeeded some others equally mortifying. Though he had detected with a critical eye more than one failure of perfect symmetry in her form, he was forced to acknowledge her figure to be light and pleasing, and in spite of his asserting that her manners were not those of the fashionable world, he was caught by their easy playfulness. So, again, all this stuff that he points out is wrong, is not perfect, her not being perfectly symmetrical, which is, you know, the ideals of beauty and whatnot. He's still drawn to her. Um, so even though her manners are not those that are from, like, the elite in London society, she, he still finds them light and pleasing. So even though they're not exactly what he's supposed to want to see, he finds that he likes it anyway. And I find all of that very endearing to Mr. Darcy and a good hint from this pretty early stage that he is not who Elizabeth thinks he is and not as proud and unforgiving and satirical as Elizabeth thinks he is. Another place where Elizabeth is just wrong. <laughs> All right. And of this, she was perfectly unaware. So again, Elizabeth has no idea this is going on. To her, he was only the man who had made himself agreeable nowhere and who had not thought her handsome enough to dance with. So again, this chapter is all just about how is Lizzie wrong now? Lizzie is also wrong about this. So now we're learning a little bit more. He says he, he began to wish to know more of her and as a step towards conversing with her himself tended to her conversation with others. <laughs> Which is just so funny because I just think of him like kind of creeping around the room and like eavesdropping on things that she's saying. Which is not a good tactic, I don't think, for learning about Elizabeth. <laughs> this just seems like a bad plan, but it is the plan that he goes with. So there you go. 
Um, but I think it shows kind of his lack of game, so to speak. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to come and talk to her and flirt to, with her himself. So he's just going to listen to other people talking to her, which seems like a bad plan. So his, so, but him doing so him, like, this is where she starts to realize that he's like observing her and paying attention to her, but it's in such an odd way that she is not sure what to do with it. But his doing so drew her notice. It was at Sir William Lucas's where a large party was assembled. So they're at the Lucas's now for like a dinner party or something. And that's where she first notices that he is listening to her conversation, you know, kind of stalking her probably around the room, but not talking to her himself and just altogether being kind of weird is my interpretation of this. And so she's still talking to Charlotte. Charlotte says, what does Mr. Darcy mean? She said to Charlotte by listening to my conversation with Colonel Forster. That is a question which only Mr. Darcy can answer. But if he does it any more, I shall certainly let him know that I see what he's about. He has a very satirical eye, and if I do not begin by being impertinent myself, I shall soon grow afraid of him. Okay, I, I, uh, I know this is going on every single thing that Lizzie says, but again, Lizzie's just wrong. <laughs> again, this chapter's all about how can Lizzie be wrong about people? And uh, here she is doing it again. She is wrong by saying that he has a satirical eye. Um, and she's basically saying that he's watching her because he doesn't like her, because he wants to laugh at her, because he thinks she's silly or something. When we just found out from Darcy's head that as a step towards conversing with her himself, attended to her conversation with others. So he is listening to her because he wants to talk to her but doesn't know how. Because he is the ultimate of introverts, which is another reason why I love him, because I'm an introvert as well. Highly um, understand this idea of not being able to talk to somebody you like because you can't get, pick up the nerve to do it. That's where he's at. He is, you know, in this place where he can't, you know, get the nerve together to talk to the pretty girl he likes. So he's just kind of skulking about and hoping to, like, hear, be near her even though he can't talk to her yet. And she thinks that he's, like, trying to laugh at her with a satirical eye. So he, you know, she thinks that he is judging her when he's just trying to be near her. She's completely misjudging the whole situation. So on his approaching them soon afterward, though without seeming to have any intention of speaking, Miss Lucas defied her friend to mention such a subject to him, which immediately provoking Elizabeth to do it, she turned to him and said, did you not think, Mr. Darcy, that I expressed myself uncommonly well just now, when I was teasing Colonel Foster to give us a ball at Meryton? With great energy, but it is a subject which always makes a lady energetic. You are severe on us. So that is their first little tete-a-tete there between Elizabeth and Darcy, where she rounds on him and basically calls him out for, like, you were listening to my conversation with Colonel Forster. Uh, and he, I mean, actually makes a decent enough comeback. I mean, just says with great energy, but it's the subject which always makes a lady energetic. So, you know, which I think is kind of a general platitude of the time. And even to this day, I think it kind of persists this idea that ladies and women, girls like to go to the dances more than the boys do. I don't know, it was a thing when I was 
a kid and going to like middle school and high school dances that that was kind of a trope that people believed even though you know the boys usually showed up um but it's considered a girl thing to want to dance I suppose in general and not a guy thing and you know we're seeing that it, it was that it was that way 200 years ago when this book was written as well um and she just kind of comes back with you are severe on us meaning that like you're being mean to ladies by saying that sort of thing that ladies always want to dance. And it seems like that could have gone on to some actual interesting banter, except for that Miss Lucas interjects with, it will be her turn soon to be teased, said Miss Lucas. I'm going to open the instrument, Eliza, and you know what follows. And Elizabeth comes back with, you are a very strange creature by way of a friend, always wanting me to play and sing before anybody and everybody. If my vanity had taken a musical turn, you would have been invaluable. But as it is, I would really rather not sit down before those who must be in the habit of hearing the very best performers. On Miss Lucas's persevering, however, she added, Very well, if it must be so, it must. And gravely glancing at Mr. Darcy, there is a fine old saying which everybody here is of course familiar with, Keep your breath to cool your porridge, and I shall keep mine to swell my song. So here again is something that happens a lot where Elizabeth doesn't seem to want to exhibit to steal Mr. Bennett's word from later in the novel. Um, she doesn't want or she says she doesn't want to, you know, play and sing in front of everybody. She's kind of being demure about it, which is, I think, what you're supposed to be. You know, a good feminine woman wouldn't want to be too proud and over the top with her accomplishments so she's supposed to sort of be like oh me oh I, I don't know do you want me to play so it seems kind of I don't know almost put upon I don't know this is a weird place I don't quite get it for Elizabeth it doesn't feel quite right to me um I mean I get that she doesn't necessarily want to play for everybody all the time but it also just seems a little like but you do play well. Like it's said throughout that everybody likes hearing her play, even if she's not as quite as technically proficient as she could be. Um, but she's, you know, having to be talked into playing and then gravely glancing at Mr. Darcy. I think this is again, supposed to be sarcastic because <laughs> she's being very overly so gravely glancing. So she's very severe and serious as she says, there's a very fine old saying, which everybody here is, of course, familiar. Keep your breath to cool your porridge, and I shall keep mine to swell my song. So that's supposed to, the keep your breath to cool your porridge is, you know, apparently like a colloquial expression of the time, according to my little book. So to me, that is a very sarcastic thing of saying something very trite, and be saying it very seriously like and but she is doing it that is something that mary does in some of the uh, adaptations where she, i've got a thing in my head from the 1995 where mary's like a friend in need is a friend indeed sir and she says it very seriously that's kind of what I, the vibe i'm getting from this where she's doing it but in this case elizabeth knows she's doing it and she's doing it to be funny versus when mary does it and she's completely actually serious about it um, so that's the way I'm reading this anyway, is that she is, you know, saying some, 
normal saying and just saying it super like straight faced and serious as if it's this brand new genius thought that she's had. I don't know. So again, that thing, a friend in need is a friend indeed. You know, that kind of thing. I think it's funny. Anyway, it goes on to talk about her performance, saying that she was very pleasing, though by no means capital. Um, but she was eagerly succeeded by her sister, who does not show that little feminine unwillingness to play. Like, she doesn't need to be coaxed. Mary just jumps right in. She wants to be there. She is ready to go. Um, so that shows a difference there, and I do think that it's supposed to be pointing out a little bit of the lack of politeness of Mary, because I do think you're supposed to sort of be, again, that whole, oh, who, me? You want me to play? Well, if you insist, that little game, which I think is kind of dumb, but I do think it's what you're supposed to be doing in this time period, and I do think that's what we're seeing here in the difference between a Lizzie having to be sort of asked and encouraged and you know, multiple times by Charlotte to get her up and playing versus Mary, who it doesn't seem like anybody asked her to play. She just ran up and like pushed her sister off the bench is what I have in my mind. I don't think she actually did that, but you know, that kind of energy where she's like, and my turn. Um, so she runs up and wants to do it. And she says she was always impatient for display. And so this is actually an interesting part for about Mary. It says, Mary, who having in consequence of being the only plain one in the family, worked hard for knowledge and accomplishments, was always impatient for display. So poor Mary, she's the plain one. And so she's, I don't know, the nerd one is how they portray her in most of the adaptations and things. So she has tried really hard to get knowledge. She reads a lot and is always impatient for display of her accomplishments of playing the piano and singing. And then... This is very mean and very critical. Poor Mary here. Mary had neither genius nor taste. And though vanity had given her application, it had given her likewise a pedantic air and conceited manner, which would have injured a higher degree of excellence than she had reached. I'm just like, ooh, ouch, burn on Mary here. So she had neither genius nor taste. Her vanity had given her application, so she practiced a lot. But through that practice, she had a very pedantic and conceited manner, which would have injured a higher degree of excellence than she had reached. So she doesn't, what I'm taking from this is that she's very technically good. She can press the right keys on the piano, but she doesn't have any musicality. She doesn't have the passion, the, I don't know, the ability to like make it music, right? So like just playing the keys sort of I don't know with a dead pedantic air doesn't make fun pretty music you need to be able to like make it louder and softer and faster and quicker faster and slower and like playing with the dynamics of it all to really make it fun entertaining music and so that's what I'm getting from this is that she doesn't have that side of the musicality like she can she has the precision she can play the correct chords but she doesn't have the passion for the music to make it more than just what's on the page. You know, so she can, she's, Mary had a little lamb, 
little lamb, little lamb, very just whatever, versus like, Mary had a little lamb. And that's a dumb way to do it, but you get the point, like, adding, like, adding your own flair to it. Um, which good performances, just performers, just kind of have that ability to, like, get that little extra, that little personality, that something in it to make it good. And that is what I am reading here, is that Elizabeth has that it factor that makes her entertaining. So even though Mary is, like, technically a better piano player, you'd rather listen to Elizabeth because she's just got that it factor. That's my interpretation of this whole thing anyway. Because it says Elizabeth, easy and unaffected, had been listened to with much more pleasure, though not playing half so well. So Mary is technically the better piano player, but you'd rather listen to Elizabeth because she's just got the personality and the ability to put musicality into the music. Which I think makes sense for their personalities. That, that tracks. So... Mary, at the end of a long concerto, was glad to purchase praise and gratitude by Scotch and Irish airs. So I think the other thing we get here is that Mary is playing inappropriate music for the venue to show off how important and good she is. She plays difficult music. But this is supposed to be like a little dinner party where you're playing like light. Basically, you're supposed to be playing like light party pop music that people can dance to and stuff. And Mary comes in with this very difficult and you know dense concerto and that's just not the vibe of the type of music you're supposed to be playing at these sorts of things she just doesn't get it it's a good piece to show off how good she is like it's probably more difficult than like elizabeth or anybody else at the party could play but just because it's like technically good, difficult music doesn't mean that it's appropriate for the occasion. And that's, again, what I'm getting out of this is that she picks this really difficult concerto that nobody really wants to listen to um, instead of playing what she's what people actually want and what is more appropriate for the venue, which are these light Scottish and Irish airs that people can dance to, which they, you know, quickly her younger sisters with some of the Lucases and two or three of the officers eager start joined eagerly in dancing at one end of the room. So she plays her one difficult concerto and then goes off to play her dancing music. Then we get to another place where I wonder who is the narrator here? Is this the third person omniscient or is this Lizzie's perspective? Because it says, Mr. Darcy stood near them in silent indignation at such a mode of passing the evening. So that's near them, meaning the people dancing at the end of the room. So the younger um, Bennett sisters, Lydia and Kitty, a couple of the Lucases, and two or three officers are dancing. Mr. Darcy stood near them in silent ind indignation at such a mode of passing the evening. Who says who? Is that the third person omniscient narrator? So is Darcy really silently indignant at such a mode of passing the evening? Or is that just what Lizzie thinks? I don't know that we know for sure one way or the other. I tend to believe that this is what Lizzie thinks as opposed to necessarily being a hundred percent accurate and true to Mr. Darcy. But I honestly do not know for sure. This is just my thought on the subject. Um, what I think is probably true is it goes on. To, it says that he is stood near them in silent 
indignation to the exclusion of all conversation and was too much engrossed by his own thoughts to perceive that Sir William Lucas was his neighbor. So I think it's true that he's in, he's silent and not talking to anyone and, you know, just thinking his own thoughts and not paying attention to Sir William Lucas. But just that part of, is he really standing there in silent indignation at such a mode of passing the evening? Is he really standing there thinking like, how dare people dance? That really feels to me like just something that Lizzie is thinking because Lizzie has it in her head that he hates dancing and that he hates everyone and that he's this like over the top horrible person and all of this stuff that we're getting. That just feels like something that's coming from Lizzie and in the, the uh, and coming from again Lizzie's perspective. Maybe he's not actually in silent indignation of such a mode of passing the evening. Maybe he's just an introvert who's standing there because he doesn't really know what to do with himself. That's more what I think is happening. But, you know, I don't think we get a clear a clear ending or understanding from anybody which way is completely true. I just, I just want to point out that I'm not sure I quite believe that. Um, and then we get an interesting thing here where Sir William shows us a little bit more about who he is, saying, what a charming amusement for young people this is, Mr. Darcy. There's nothing like dancing after all. I consider it as one of the fine, one of the first refinements of Polish societies. Um, and I think that this is sort of a platitude. Um, that's what's, um, there's a annotation in my book about how that's, how such praise of, platit of dancing was a platitude of the time. So um, saying that, you know, people, something like that is just something that you say in polite society. It's a nothing little saying that a lot of people would say. And I think it's interesting that Mr. Darcy comes back with certainly, sir, and it has the advantage also of being in vogue amongst the less polished societies of the world. Every savage can dance. Now, that is something that I think doesn't age well, right? Every savage can dance. That doesn't age well as a saying, as a way of putting it. So I'm not going to praise the specific individual language he uses here. But I do think that the comment on society is interesting because we're taking this platitude that Sir William says about how it shows how refined um, and... How this dancing is the first refinement of Polish societies. How refined and polished they are by dancing. And he's like, yeah, anybody can dance. It doesn't show. Basically, I'm like, the way I read this is basically like, well, anybody can dance. Like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't show that we're polished at all. We're just like anybody else. Um, I'm not sure if that's what it's supposed to mean, but that's how I read it. And let's be fair here. I am very biased on trying to, like, be a Darcy apologetic. So apologetic. Yeah, have Darcy apologetics. So maybe I'm completely over apologizing for Darcy at this point, and maybe this is a horrible thing for him to have said. Again, I don't think that the language of every savage can dance has aged well. I don't think that that's a nice thing that he said. Um, I think there are, there's plenty problematic we could get into in that word savage. Um, but kind of overlooking the linguistics of it per se... I think that it is interesting with this whole like him pushing back and saying that no, it's not a sign of polished society. Anybody can dance. That's how I'm reading every savage. I'm reading that as an everybody or anybody. Um, so maybe I'm being a little too kind to Darcy. If you have a strong opinion on that, let me know. 
But that's how I read it. And Sir William doesn't know what to say to that. So it says, Sir William only smiled. Which I take to mean like he has kind of like a bewildered smile. Like you did not... A, like like so you came up and like, hey, how are you today? To a random acquaintance you don't know very well. And they went into a whole like horror story about how they have cancer. And you're just like, uh, I did not really want to know your life story or some deep, horrible thing that has happened to you. Getting cancer is probably not a good, good representation, but you know... They go into something less horrific. Um, you ask how they are and they go into this whole story about their kid and their kid has a cold and what they did with their weekend and all this stuff. And they go on for 20 minutes when you just wanted to, hey, I'm fine as you crossed in the hallway. Like it just, I just see this like as a, uh, you didn't, you did not respond appropriately to my little like small talk platitude. I don't know what to do with myself. Smile. And so after a pause, he continues with your friend performs delightfully on seeing Bingley join the group. And I doubt not that you are an adept in the science yourself, Mr. Darcy. And they go back and forth a little bit. Again, Sir William is trying to like show off how important he is by mentioning St. James. And Darcy doesn't care. And they talk a little bit more about how Darcy has a house in town. So he has a big country estate and he owns a house in London. And, you know, Sir Lucas talks a little bit more about that. And he, you know, Sir Lucas says some more stuff about thinking about maybe moving to town someday, but not thinking it would be good for his wife. And then it says he paused in hopes of an answer, but his companion was not disposed to make any. So again, we just see here that Sir Lucas is, or Sir William Lucas is trying over and over again to start a conversation with Darcy with like these sort of normal conversational platitudes over and over again. And he's either not responding correctly with the whole like savage comment or, you know, saying he doesn't dance at St. James's or he's, you know, barely just, he asks if he has a house in town and Darcy just bows. So I guess I'm taking that as to be like a, just kind of a nod. He's not even really answering. And then he says something else. And again, Darcy doesn't answer. So it's just this very painful, like one-sided conversation where Sir Lucas is trying to draw Darcy out and Darcy has no interest and is not helping the conversation along at all. And I think, again, we're supposed to see this, at least from Elizabeth's perspective, as a, as a sign that Darcy thinks he's better than everybody and, you know, is full of himself. Versus I'm seeing this as he doesn't really know how to people. Um, he doesn't really know how to talk to people he doesn't already know. He doesn't know how to do small talk. And that's all Sir William does. Sir William is a, like small talk machine it seems like that's all he can do so Darcy doesn't know what to do with that in any case Elizabeth is suddenly walking by and Sir William pulls her into this conversation by you know saying that my dear Miss Eliza why are you not dancing Mr. Darcy you must allow me to present this young lady to you as a very desirable partner you cannot refuse to dance I am sure when such beauty is before you and taking her hand, he would have given it to Mr. Darcy, who, though extremely surprised, was not unwilling to receive it, when she instantly drew back and said with some discomposure to Sir William, Indeed, sir, I have not the least intention of dancing. I entreat you not to suppose that I moved this way in order to beg for a partner. 
I find this to be kind of interesting here, where um, Sir Sir William Lucas is pulling Elizabeth in and trying to get her and Darcy to dance, which I'm sure he sees as this huge politeness, you know, to try and get, you know, as his hostly duties to get the young people all dancing. It's definitely a Sir Lu- William Lucas sort of move. Um... And I think this also is interesting here of saying Elizabeth has to say, I have not the least intention of dancing. She's not allowed to say, I don't want to dance with Mr. Darcy. Cause that's, you're not allowed to just not want to dance with somebody in this time period. It's completely improper and rude. You have to say, you don't want to dance at all. You're not allowed to say, I don't want to dance with you. So in this sense, her not wanting to dance with Mr. Darcy means that she's not allowed to dance at all this evening. Which maybe she wasn't planning to dance at all anyway, but this is like sort of forcing her, forcing her hand in that sense. Um, It says, Mr. Darcy with grave propriety requested to be allowed the honor of her hand, but in vain. Elizabeth was determined, nor did Sir William at all shake her purpose by his attempt at persuasion. So Darcy does actually want to be dancing with her. And this is another place where we're back to being kind of third-person omniscient, I believe, because it says that Darcy was extremely surprised, but not unwilling to dance with her. But um, she doesn't want to dance with him. And she makes it very clear, Mr. Darcy... And this also, I think, has helps to put, put a lie to the idea that he was standing around in silent indignation at such a mode of passing the evening earlier. Because now it's clear that he's not unwilling to go dance. And we find out later he just doesn't like dancing with people he doesn't know. He's not like anti-dancing in general. The way Elizabeth is like in this has it in her head that she's like anti-dancing. Um, I don't think that that's true. And I think we will see more of that later. He just doesn't like dancing with people he doesn't know. Which again, as an introvert myself, I really um, empathize with. Especially with what dancing meant at the time. Like, right? Because you end up are spending like a half an hour with this person and you're expected to talk through a lot of that half hour. Like you're supposed to have small talk and chat with this person, which we've already seen Mr. Darcy is not good at. He is not good at the small talk. Um, so to, have, to be expected to small talk with somebody you've never met before for half an hour, that sounds excruciating. That sounds like, like a form of torture to me as an introvert myself. So I very much empathize with him not wanting to do that. Um, but Elizabeth has taken this to mean he doesn't like dancing at all. That's where she's kind of gone with this. Whereas I think that really he's just, he was just didn't want to dance with somebody he doesn't know, which are very different things. So again, we're seeing where this Elizabeth is wrong part of this chapter because Elizabeth is wrong a lot. Um, and so Sir William is trying to get them to do it again, or trying to get them to dance. He's still trying to convince them. And Elizabeth has this line here saying that Mr. Darcy is all politeness, which I think is hugely sarcastic. She does not believe. She says, smiling, I think she's laughing her ass off here. She thinks that that's hilarious that he's being polite because she thinks he's the least polite person ever. And then we've got a line here from Sir William saying he is indeed but considering the inducement, my dear Miss Eliza, we cannot wonder at his complacence. For who would object to such a partner? Which is a huge callback to who would object to such a partner? 
Mr. Darcy. He's the one who refused to dance with her at that first dance where they met. And that's why she's still mad at him. So she's pretending like she's not mad about that. And like it didn't really bother her. But I think I think we can all tell it really bothered her. It really got under her skin. So when he says that for who would object to such a partner. Elizabeth looked archly and turned away. So she's kind of like who would object Mr. Darcy would object. He kind of gives she that's what I'm reading this to mean. She gives him kind of a look like you would object to dancing with me, wouldn't you? You did. So I'm not going to dance with you. And then she turns away and leaves. And yeah, she says all of that with just like a, I'm seeing a raised eyebrow like. Mm-hmm. Anyway, her resistance had not injured her with the gentleman. And he was thinking of her with some complacency when thus accosted by Miss Bingley. So. He does not think less of her for refusing to dance with him which again is actually something that I think is a plus for him like on the side of him being a good person that he doesn't take that as like an insult or like as this crazy thing like he thinks that she's still super interesting and I think he finds her still pretty witty for being able to talk herself out of the dance and everything and so he's not upset by this at all he's still thinking of her with some complacency um when and this is a great adjective he's then accosted by miss bingley um which tells us a little bit about miss bingley here as well and she says i can guess the subject of your reverie i should imagine not you are considering how insupportable it would be to pass many evenings in this manner in such society and indeed i am quite of your opinion I was never more annoyed. The insipidity and yet the noise, the nothingness and yet the self-importance of these people. What would I give to hear your strictures on them? Your conjecture is totally wrong, I assure you. My mind was more agreeably engaged. I have been meditating on the very great pleasure. I turn my page. Very great pleasure which a pair of fine eyes on the face of a pretty woman can bestow. So here is a very famous line that ends up in like all the adaptations. But I have been meditating on the very great pleasure which a pair of fine eyes in the face of a pretty woman can bestow. So he's again, so she's, he's showing that Elizabeth has now moved up to pretty in his eyes and she has a pair of fine eyes. And he's admitting to Miss Bingley that he's been meditating on the very great pleasure which a pair of fine eyes in the face of a pretty woman can bestow. It's rather poetic for somebody like him. Like he doesn't, we, this is the first time I think we're hearing him speak like this, which is another indication I think of his inner, I don't know, thoughts and ability to talk like this, that he can be poetic when he wants to be, is an interesting thing. And is something that I don't think we have seen from him yet, but is an indication I think of his, I want to say intelligence, his wit, you know, we want him to be able to banter with Elizabeth or he wouldn't be a good match with her, right? Like that's something that she, I think, will want in a partner. And this is our first indication that he can do that when he's comfortable. He's not comfortable with Elizabeth yet or with most of the people he is in with society, but he is comfortable enough with Miss Bingley to do it a little bit. And so I think that's interesting that we're getting that little hint at him. And here we also get our, I think, a hint about Miss Bingley saying Miss Bingley immediately fixed her eyes on his face and desired he would tell her that what lady had the credit of inspiring such reflections. 
Mr. Darcy replied with great intrepidity. Intrepidity. Miss Elizabeth Bennet. So, I'm not 100% word sure on what intrepidity that word means, but I'm kind of reading it as bravely, but I don't know for sure. That's just kind of how I read it. I have not looked it up in a dictionary. I probably should, but I have not. Um, but intrepid. To be intrepid, I, I like... I'm taking it as sort of a, with bravery or courage, that sort of thing, saying Miss Elizabeth Bennet. And the reason that it would be with courage is because I'm sure he knows that that is not going to make Miss Bingley happy. And she's going to tease the hell out of him for it, as she continues to do for the rest of the chapter and on into multiple chapters in the future. So... He's, you know, like, they use that word with, like, an intrepid explorer and that. So, with in great intrepidity is not a word I think I've read, I haven't seen in this used this way before. But intrepid would be, some, like I said, like an intrepid explorer, a brave explorer, going into places, you know. So, and I do think that it is with bravery that he says this to Miss Bingley. Because he is opening himself up for a lot of mockery in the future by saying this. And so, Miss Elizabeth Bennet, repeated Miss Bingley, I am all astonishment. How long has she been such a favorite? And pray, when am I to wish you joy? Meaning, when are you going to get married to her? And he replies with, that is exactly the question which I expected you to ask. A lady's imagination is very rapid. It jumps from admiration to love, from love to matrimony in a moment. I knew you'd be wishing me joy. Nay, if you are so serious about it, I shall consider the matter as absolutely settled. You shall have a charming mother-in-law, indeed, and of course she will always be at Pemberley with you. He listened to her with perfect indifference, while she chose to entertain herself in this manner, and as his composure convinced her that all was safe, her wit flowed long. So she just goes off teasing him about this, about how horrible Elizabeth's mother is and her family and all the, all the things that would, you know, make it so that she is not a good match for Darcy. And the fact that he just takes it with complacency, or he listens to her with perfect indifference, the fact that that didn't get him riled up makes her think that, um, that his composure convinced her that all was safe. So that means, because we know that she wants to marry him, right? And so she thinks that even though he thinks Elizabeth is pretty, he's not planning to marry her, and she can tell that because he doesn't care that she's like laughing at Elizabeth's family and saying all this stuff about her mother. And the fact that none of that is, you know, causing him any distress, she thinks that all is safe. That means that he's not going to be marrying her. He's not thinking about it. And I mean, I think in that sense, she's right. I don't think Darcy is planning to marry Elizabeth at this point. He is starting to notice that he likes her, that he thinks she's pretty, that he's interested in her. But he's definitely not to the place where he wants to marry her at this point at all. He won't get there for quite some time. I don't think. And, it, and the reason is for those things that, you know, Miss Bingley is pointing out here. And that's what the uh, annotation says here. It says, Miss Bingley, eager to discredit Elizabeth, focuses immediately on what will be Elizabeth's, as well as Jane's, principal marital handicap, the Bennett family, especially Mrs. Bennett's. And it's true, Mrs. Bennet is a handicap in and of herself because of her um, impropriety and how annoying she is to be around. You know, Mr. Darcy doesn't want to be around Mrs. Bennet. He doesn't want to be associated with her. 
but also through her, that's where all the low connections of the Bennett family come from, right? Because she married up. So again, back into the the history of the Bennett family, Mr. Bennett is a landed gentry, a landed gentleman from a landed gentry family that goes back for a long time, as far as we know, and probably has decent, if not, you know, amazing connections. We don't know of any like low connections from his side, really, other than Mr. Collins. But he even he is, um, you know, in the clergy. So he's not low, low. He's not in trade, per se, which is, you know, he's of the gentry class. He's not landed, but he will be when he inherits. Mr. Collins, anyway. Um, but that's Mr. Collins is the only person we meet from the Bennett side of the family. Um, Mrs. Bennett, however, we meet a bunch of her family. So we find out her father was a solicitor in Meriton. One of her sisters is married to now a solicitor in Meriton who took over her father's business. And then her brother is a tradesman in who lives in Cheapside in London. So she has much lower connections. And so laughing about Mrs. Bennett specifically, I think, is both about her behavior and her connections here, which is the biggest sticking point that will come up again and again for why Darcy wouldn't want to marry Elizabeth. It's because of her family connections not being high enough and the money. She doesn't have a good dowry either. But he doesn't want to be connected to such a ridiculous family, um, which I think... We will partially see that connection with um, his own aunt to show how ridiculous his family can be in, you know, in the way that they act. You know, in these books, they always talk about breeding and good breeding and whatnot being the, being what um, makes you, you know, in good society. And they talk about good breeding as like politeness and your manners, which is a really gross way to talk about it, in my opinion, but was of the the way they thought about it at the time that you're like born into good society. So it's your breeding that makes you a good person. Um, which I mean, it goes up to, you know, God puts you in the place you are because of how good you are. Like you're born into a poor family because God wanted you to be poor was I think a relatively common concept of how the world worked at the time. That's, you know, that's why, you know, God chose the king. God chose, chooses who gets born into the royal family and they're there because they are the best to be rulers. And, you know, if you're born into an important place, it's because you're meant to be important, right? And so that idea is definitely part of, like, the zeitgeist of the time. And so I think Miss Bingley here is hitting on something that is pretty important, that... Elizabeth doesn't have good connections, good enough connections really to be eligible to marry Mr. Darcy by the society of the day. But what she is missing, what I think is interesting here, is that neither does she. Miss Bingley doesn't have the right connections. She has the money. She is rich enough to marry somebody like Darcy. But she is one generation out. Her father was a tradesman from what we found out. So her father was no better than Mr. Gardner, Elizabeth's uncle, who she makes fun of living in Cheapside. Her connections are just as bad. Um, she is kind of the Mrs. Bennett character in that sense, where Mrs. Bennett was able to marry up because she had money, right? She had a good dowry. She had, I think we find out 5,000 pounds, which is a pretty good dow size dowry when probably a big portion of why she was able to marry up the way she was. 
Um, Miss Bingley has an even better dowry, I believe. I don't remember if we know exactly how much it is, but she has a good dowry. dowry. I want to say 20,000 pounds, but I'm not 100% sure if I remember that correctly. I'm making that up. But I'm assuming she has a good dowry. Um, so they're very similar in that sense, too, where Miss Bingley really also is kind of in that position where she would be expected to marry a man of status who needs her money, right? She doesn't have the status. She has the money. Um, and so in general, she would be expected to marry somebody like, honestly, like maybe um, Darcy's cousin who we haven't met yet, Colonel Fitzwilliam, um, because he's somebody who has good breeding, quote unquote. Um, he comes from, you know, he's the daughter, he's the son of an earl. He comes from a very good family, but he doesn't have any money because he's a second son. So she would be expected to marry somebody like that, a second son, a man who's um, got, you know, a landed gentry, a gentleman who has an estate who needs who needs money for whatever reason, like their estate, they've lost money or whatever, who needs to marry a fortune, so to speak, um, and so is willing to overlook her poor connections. So she is also, in that sense, Miss Bingley is also aiming too high, honestly, um, which is something that I think is often missed by a modern reader, and it was off was for sure missed by me most of the time I've read it. I'm sure somebody pointed it out and I've like absorbed it because I listen to lots of people talk about Jane Austen. Um, but it's something that I find in this reading that I'm really paying attention to and thinking about is that Miss Bingley is not actually socially higher than Elizabeth Bennet. She's richer, but socially, honestly, there, the case could be made that she's lower. So the idea that Mr. Darcy would marry her She's not really the socially acceptable match either. I mean, Lady Catherine, I don't think would be really any happier for him marrying Miss Bingley than his, she is for him marrying Elizabeth. I don't know. But I think that that's an interesting point that I don't, that I think here that Miss Bingley laughing about how awful Elizabeth's family is, is so such a hypocritical move and it's completely ignoring that her family isn't any better now i mean we don't know if she has any horribly annoying relatives because we only meet i mean other than herself she's a very annoying relative <laughs> um because we just meet her and her sister and her brother right like those are the only family members well and her brother-in-law um but we don't know if she has you know i assume her parents are dead we don't know about any aunts and uncles or whatever family that she knows whether she has annoying relatives or not. But so socially speaking, again, she is one generation out from being her father was a tradesman. She is not socially high enough. She has the money. She's trying to buy her way into society and she is not in society yet. And that's also part of why they really want Bingley to buy an estate because that would make them more, that would make them the sisters of a gentleman, right? Because he needs to be landed gentry, he needs to buy an estate. And that would help solidify Miss Bingley's position to be well-to-do enough to marry Mr. Darcy. But I think it's an interesting juxtaposition, like how she keeps wanting to put the Bennets down and the society of the area down and everything. I think a lot of it honestly has to do with insecurity herself. Like, she's one of those people who's putting other people down to make herself feel higher because she is not 
secure in her position. Um, you know, that's why her sister married a man more of fashion than money. He probably needed her dowry, right? Um, so she married a man who doesn't really have much going for him money-wise, and that's why he married her, and that's how she got her, like, entree into society, so to speak. Honestly, Char um, Caroline, Miss Bingley is probably expected to do very similar. Marry a man like that who needs her money. That's her way to get into society. Mr. Darcy doesn't need her money. He's pretty darn rich himself. Now, he is expected to marry a woman with money, too, that matches him. But he has no reason to need to go for a woman who has just the money. He'd be expected to go for a woman who has the money and the lineage. So. I don't know if that was particularly insightful, but I think it's really interesting. A way to look at Caroline differently. That, like, she... I think is very unsettled in society. She is trying to prove herself. She has new money. She has something to prove in a way that I don't think I had. I definitely know that I did not get at first without really thinking about more of this society and the way it works. So I think that's a very interesting point in my opinion. The other thing I would like to talk about with Caroline as we get into this is how old is she? I don't know that we for sure know. I don't think we ever get her specific age. But at this point, we know that Mr. Bingley is about 22, probably. Um, and I would be surprised if... We don't know how old Mrs. Hurst is either. Mrs. Hurst could be older or younger than Mr. Bingley. I think it's fair to say she could go either way. But Miss Bingley, I think, is pretty clear that he, she's younger. And part of that is that I do think that, especially with how they've made such a big deal of Charlotte being 27 and therefore on the shelf, I think that if she was more than about 23, we would know about it because that would make her old to be unmarried, right? So I think it's they. she would usually give us the age if she was more than about that. And with Mr. Bingley being about 22, 23, I think it's safe to say that she's younger than him. So if Mrs. Hurst is the oldest, and then that would probably put her at like 24-ish, Bingley at 22-ish, um, and then Caroline, honestly, very similar in age to Lizzie, probably at 20-ish, would be my guess. But I'm putting, so, um, and then could be even if, if Mr. Bingley's the oldest, that would put him at 22-ish, possibly Mrs. Hurst at 20-ish, and uh, Caroline Bingley at 17-ish. I think that's possible, but I'm going to guess that I'm putting her more like 20-ish, I think. I have nothing to go by to prove that Mrs. Hurst is older than her brother, other than she's already married, but she could definitely be married at 20. Um... Uh, so this is a completely like personal speculation on why I think that Caroline, but I think Caroline is either, somewhere between 17 and 20 is about, is her age range. I'm leaning towards 1920 probably only because I think if she was younger than that, I also think we might, it might be mentioned, you know, cause the fact that Lydia is 16 is brought up a bunch. The fact that Georgiana is 16 is brought up a bunch. So if she was, but I mean, 
17 would be considered old enough, I suppose, that it wouldn't necessarily need to be mentioned the way 16 is. I'm not sure. I think, I don't know. Standard age to be out would be, I think, 17, 17, 18, 19. She would definitely be out by then. 20 would be about Lizzie's age, and for sure she'd be out by then. But I think right around there, 18, 19, 20 is about how old she probably is. I think. Which is younger than she's often portrayed in um, adaptations, I think. Um, not that they ever like give an explicit age for her there. But it's definitely something that I think is worth pointing out in that I think that Caroline is often seen as being this like very catty, horrible person, which, I mean, she is to some sense. But I think there's also something to be said that I think she's young. She's probably Lizzie's age, if not slightly younger. Um, and she's also trying to come up in the world. She is, you know, trying to make herself look good by being, by putting other people down, which is not a good strategy. I'm not saying that this is, makes her a good person, but it is, I feel like she's much more understandable as a character if we assume that she's younger. Um, and I have a lot more sympathy for her if I assume that she's younger. So I just think that that's an interesting thing to ponder as far as Caroline goes of how old is she actually and where is she actually coming from? And it's a place that I don't think I ever, I don't know, gave her the grace for in the past, really thought about. But the idea that she is probably 19, 20 years old and is trying to make her way up in the world and, you know, has seen the disastrous match of her sister who married a man of more fashion than fortune, as we are told, who seems like a real dud. Um, and she wants something different. She wants something better. But she is also doesn't have the social standing to move in the first circles. So she has set her sights on her brother's best friend which is probably seems like the best, if not only option in her social circle for who she should marry. Right. Um, and he seems like the perfect catch for her. And she's decided she's going to, you know, set her cap for him. And I mean, he doesn't agree. And I don't think that they actually make a good match, but in some respects, I think she's given more hate than maybe she should be. I think that she needs a little more compassion for the kind of position she's in. And the position all the women are in this society, honestly. Um, trying to be more compassionate to these people who don't have good options. She very much does not have a good option of what to do with herself. And I think it also gives me a little more compassion for why she's so upset with the idea of Bingley marrying Jane. Because that does put him... I mean, she is theoretically a step up socially because she's a gentleman's daughter and he's you know the son of a tradesman but he's wealthy and he maybe could do better and I think she Caroline is very much looking at wanting to step up socially she wants to be able to step up socially and Jane Bennett is maybe not doing that or not enough of that she wants to step up higher be get more wealth gain more standing and currently, since she's not married, she does that through her brother. And so she wants to make sure her brother does that. Which I'm not saying is a good impulse necessarily, but I think is an understandable one. At least in my opinion. 
So anyway, that's the end of chapter six. I went into a deep dive on Caroline Bingley for some reason. I don't know that that necessarily fits in that chapter, but it was something I wanted to say. Um, and I'm sure I will have more to say about Caroline Bingley as we go on and as we find more things about her. Um, I would love anybody's thoughts on what you think of Miss Bingley and what you think of, you know, what her motivations are. And if you have any sympathy for her or not, let me know if you think that I am being way too nice to her and she is just the most hateable character in literature. Um, either way, we'll be back next time with chapter seven. Thank you.